Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 158, Offa With His Head. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Philip, Robert, and Patrick for contributing already. Many of you, in fact, I would wager most of you, rush to email me about the recent discovery of a new cure for MRSA. Now to start with, MRSA is not in fact a condition where you're obsessed with male nurses. It's basically a really nasty staph infection that's immune to the antibiotics that we commonly use, and frankly, that we overuse in many situations. It's a nasty little bug, and it can rip through hospitals and cause all manner of havoc. Anyway, so in addition to breast milk in the eyes, worms on ligaments, and horse dung in wounds, Unferth was also onto something with the potions made from wine, garlic, leeks, and bile that were kept in brass containers. Because in addition to being gross, they kill MRSA dead. Again, I apologize to any 7th century Anglo-Saxons who might have been listening and felt unfairly maligned in the medicine episodes. I was wrong. You guys were actually onto something. Okay, so last week was dark, wasn't it? Not only that, but it only covered the first half of 793. The end of the 8th century was an eventful period, so let's pick up right where we left off and talk about what else was happening in the other half of 793, and specifically with King Offa and Charlemagne. As you might remember, Offa's foil, Archbishop Jambert of Canterbury, had finally died, and Aethelherd, a Mercian, was selected to replace him. A pallium was sent for, and on the 21st of July, 793, Aethelherd was consecrated by Archbishop Higebert of Lichfield. Understand that that is a massive swing in power. Not only was the seat of Canterbury now in Mercian hands, whereas it used to be openly hostile to Mercia, but think about who was consecrating Aethelherd. It was the Archbishop of Lichfield, which was only about 15 minutes old and wasn't exactly uncontroversial. In fact, Canterbury under Jambert had refused to even recognize it. As far as they were concerned, it didn't exist. But now Jambert was dead, and so suddenly, Lichfield was not only recognized, but it was playing an active role in the elevation of the new Archbishop of Canterbury. It was a new day in ecclesiastical politics. And things weren't just shifting in the church. There were enormous changes all over the place, and on both sides of the channel. Don't forget that things between Francia and Mercia had been, uh, ugh, they'd been pretty awkward. You know, awkward might be the wrong word for it. It had been getting completely out of hand. As you might remember, a year earlier in 792, Offa began preparing coastal defenses. And while that might be a reaction to the recent killing of Areve and Dorset, I doubt it since that would have meant that he had stunning foresight due to the fact that he would have been building defenses a year before Lindisfarne was hit. Though some scholars suggest that there wasn't just the attack in Dorset, but actually there were other Viking attacks prior to Lindisfarne that just went unrecorded. And they back this up with later sources that say that he was building defenses against, quote, pagan peoples, end quote. But don't forget that the records were being written after the fact, with knowledge of what was coming, 
and so the scribes might have been just trying to tie everything together with a nice little bow. The other thing we should remember is that Offa had much more pressing issues than just a few pirates who struck Dorset. He had the possibility of all-out war and an invasion by Francia if things continued to escalate. That definitely would have provided motivation for building defenses all along the channel. So, it certainly was looking bad. Defenses were being built, they weren't really talking, hell, they weren't even trading, which had to be tough on the merchants on both sides of the channel. So yeah, it wasn't awkward, it was downright ugly. And at least initially, it looks like it was mostly due to the fact that Charlemagne had been throwing a royal temper tantrum over a marriage proposal. But not all hope was lost, and for three years, Charlemagne's Northumbrian tutor, Alcuin, had been in England, working to broker some sort of peace. Well, it looks like that time was well spent, because in 793, after years of conflict, peace was restored between the two kingdoms. And Alcuin, after getting the heebie-jeebies from the Viking raid of Lindisfarne, went back to the court of Charlemagne. But if you think things were suddenly all wine and roses, you'd be wrong. Butts were still hurt. And actually, in the resolution and immediate aftermath of the conflict, we can start to see why Offa might have been reticent to resume a relationship with Charlemagne, and how difficult it must have been for Alcuin to bring the matter to a close. Now, we already knew about how Charlemagne harbored Offa's enemy, Egbert, son of Aelmund, and how probably he also harbored Aethelred of Northumbria, who was another one of Offa's rivals. But we also have a letter that Charlemagne wrote to Archbishop Aethelhurd of Canterbury, where we learn that the Frankish king was sending Hringstan's retinue back to England. The reason that's important is because Hringstan was a rival of Offa's, who had fled the kingdom and he had been living in Francia, under Charlemagne's protection. How many of Offa's enemies were sheltered by his so-called friend in Francia, you know? Well, Hringstan had died while he was in France, so any claims or potential threats he might have posed to Offa died along with him. And now, his men were just kicking around in Francia with nothing to do, like well-armed hooligans without a World Cup to distract them. Not the best of situations for Charlemagne, so he basically deported them back to Britain. After all, without Ringstan, his men were useless to Charlemagne. But here's the part of the story where I really get a sense of exactly how two-faced Charlemagne could be. Upon sending them back, he made sure to point out that he thought that Ringstan would have been loyal to Offa, and that he was just allowing him to stay in Francia, not out of a desire to antagonize the Mercian king, but out of friendship, in the hopes that Hringstan and Offa would reconcile. Uh-huh. Sure. Scholars pretty much roundly roll their eyes at that excuse. It's just about as believable as me telling you that I drank your pint in order to make sure that it wasn't poisonous. Francia was a haven for political enemies of Offa, and Charlemagne probably posed a persistent threat to Offa's dominance. With friends like these, right? And actually, even the famed Frankish scholar Einhard wrote, quote, If you have the Frank as your friend, you don't have him as your neighbor. End quote. That's a Frank talking about how the Franks behave. Pretty damning stuff. And also, probably true, 
Charlemagne was quite the problem for his neighbors in a whole variety of ways. This degree of tension and the hardball politics that Charlemagne was playing could explain why he tried to butter up Offa after they buried the hatchet, by calling him, quote, dearest brother, end quote. Now, this phrase in the letter is a major part of why some scholars believe that Offa and Charlemagne were equals. However, many scholars disagree, and when you look at the context of the letter, it seems that dearest brother was an attempt at diplomacy, maybe a heavy-handed attempt, rather than a reflection of some sort of parody between the two men. And besides, the letter itself was almost certainly written by Alcuin, rather than Charlemagne. So we should keep that in mind before reading too much into a word or two that was included. Also, when looking at the way it was written, Charlemagne's tone wasn't that of someone who was talking to an equal. It was authoritative and diplomatic, with an emphasis, of course, on authoritative. For example, in the opening, he describes himself as the king of the Franks and the holy defender of God. And then he just describes Offa as Rex. The subtext there doesn't strike me as one between equals. When you look at the letter he sent to the Spanish bishops, for example, you see that he speaks of the events in Britain in a tone that is strikingly like how you would expect him to speak of something happening in a subordinate kingdom. Further, he speaks of fraternal love with regard to his subordinates in other letters of his. So while the use of brother in his letter might speak to fraternal love of Offa, if anything, it was a big brother writing to a little brother, rather than an indication of equality. And here's an example of that sense of authority that Charlemagne had. In a letter, he requested that Offa assist and grant passage to an Irish priest who was based in Cologne. It turns out that he needed to return to Ireland because he was accused of eating meat during Lent. Yeah, that cheeseburger you had on Ash Wednesday? Well, that would have gotten you tossed out of Francia. So obviously, the priest had to go, but Charlemagne wanted him to travel home via Mercia, since that would have been the safest way to go. So he wrote to Offa and said, quote, We request you to give orders for him to be conveyed, according to opportunity of time and transport, to his homeland, end quote. Basically, please make sure the meat lover supreme gets home safely. Charlemagne was acting as a defender of the faith taking responsibility for Christian people wherever they were, even the naughty ones. And that level of responsibility alone placed him on another level from Offa, as shown by the fact that he was flexing his muscles and politely issuing orders to Offa. Now, I'm not trying to take away from Offa. He was certainly powerful, and when we look at Alcuin's letters, we see that Offa and his court were interested in educational pursuits, much like Charlemagne. The attention to education was one of the parts of his rule that turned Charles the Shady Brother into Charles the Great. And it looks like Offa was following in that path. It's thought that he might have even had his own copy of Bede, just like Charlemagne. And King Alfred would later point to Offa's law code as a major important work, alongside that of Inna and Ethelbert. Mighty King Aethelstan, son of King Aethelred the Unread held Offa in high esteem, as he bequeathed Offa's own sword to Edmund Ironside. And even the writer Aethelweird described him as a, quote, extraordinary man, end quote. He was a big deal, and in addition to his educational pursuits and expansionism, King Offa was also deeply involved in church matters. 
he patronized monasteries in Midhampstead and Crowland, and founded monasteries at Winchcombe, St. Albans, and Bedford. He also took control of religious houses at Bath, Crookham, and maybe even Glastonbury. He was such a significant figure that even Pope Hadrian granted Offa and his wife Chinnathrith special privileges. And when I look at his attention to the improvement of his domain, the fact that he controlled a massive portion of what would become England, not to mention the fact that he constructed a barrier that was even bigger than Hadrian's Wall, I wonder if he had his own biographer like Alfred did, if he might have earned the moniker The Great. Offa was certainly a heavyweight English king. But the point I'm driving at is that despite how important Offa was, Charlemagne was Charlemagne, and it would be foolish to assume that they were on the same level on the basis of some diplomatic language and a squabble over a marriage. So that, in a nutshell, was 793. Charlie deciding to bury the hatchet with Offa, some awkward, hey buddy, how's it going letters from him, and Vikings being, well, Vikings. The following year, 794, Charlemagne wasn't all that fussed about what Offa was up to, because he was mostly focused upon dealing with heresies on the continent. He even involved the recently returned Alcuin in his efforts to defend orthodoxy, sending him to the Council of Frankfurt. So things on the continent were pretty exciting. But Charles might have wanted to pay attention to what was happening across the channel, because Offa was Offa, and he was still working on consolidating his power and expanding his holdings. Now, as you know, King Offa of Mercia had been exercising at least a decent amount of power in East Anglian lands for quite some time, due to the fact that he felt completely free to establish the Archbishopric of Lichfield, and he often treated the Middle Angles, a kingdom that was generally under East Anglian control, as one of his own provinces. So the East Anglians, at least to some degree, looked like they were subordinates to Offa. But you might also remember from the discussion about coins that East Anglia was minting their own coinage, even though Offa had been making efforts to produce a unified currency under his own control. So that was a bit of a problem. But by and large, East Anglia looked like it was under his thumb, and at the very least, they were absent from the records for years, and the royal dynasty had really run aground at around the reign of King Aelfwald of East Anglia, which was quite a while ago. So yeah, at least from the tiny little glimpses we get, it does look like the kingdom, and the dynasty in general, were largely at the mercy of larger and more powerful kingdoms, and they weren't doing all that much on the world stage. But something happened in 794 that put them back on our radar. We're told that King Aethelbert of East Anglia, a king who's largely shrouded in mystery, was beheaded on the orders of King Offa, quite possibly at Sutton Walls. We're also told that King Aethelbert's death was considered to be unjust by some, and that his memory was preserved as a martyr, with a cult dedicated to him at Hereford. Unfortunately, we aren't given a reason for the beheading. Now, right off the top of my head, I would say that this was a surefire way to prevent him from minting his own coins. However, that would be nothing but pure speculation, and many scholars believe that Offa might have ordered the beheading due to some sort of attempt at independence from Mercia. Perhaps due to the issues with Francia, and the fact that Charlemagne was one of the worst friends ever, considering the fact that he was harboring Offa's enemies, 
So maybe East Anglia looked at that and decided to make an attempt at shrugging off mercy and domination. And it all just went badly. It's also possible that Afa was simply being the best Afa he could be. And let's face it, he wasn't exactly shy about killing nobility. But whatever the case, it seems like the dream of a peaceful South was rapidly vanishing. But before I drop this topic, I should point out that some later chroniclers break from the official account and blame Queen Chinnathrith for the execution. And while I would like to think that this was because they looked at her record and noticed how deeply involved in kingdom affairs she was, and figured, well, if he went and involved her in everything else, she must have been involved in this, my suspicion is that this was just good old-fashioned sexism, and that she was being cast in the light of a scheming, power-hungry woman. So, I don't know how much we can trust those later chroniclers. And besides, those chroniclers weren't even a twinkle in their grandfather's eyes at the time of the beheading, so it's not like they would have had first-hand knowledge. Anyway, the point is that Offa was continuing to expand his dominion. He was well on the path of becoming the first true king of England. And then, on that same year, more ships appeared on the eastern coast. Once again, the details were given are light but we're told that they landed at Egfrith's monastery at Dunamutha, which the 12th century chronicler Simeon of Durham identified as Jero. Yeah, the same Jero that was the home of the Venerable Bede. So this would have been an important and wealthy monastic community, housing not only important texts, but also sacred relics, and of course, precious metals. It was a natural target, and the fact that they zeroed in on two monasteries back-to-back -back suggests to me that the Vikings knew a great deal about how the English kingdoms were organized and what the lay of the land was. I suppose it's possible that they were just amazingly lucky, but I doubt it. But unlike Lindisfarne, Jarrow was not in a situation where it was occasionally isolated by the sea due to the tides, which meant that any monks who were not immediately caught or killed could have just run for help. And that's what they almost certainly did. Now, robed men running for help might not have been that big of a deal under normal circumstances. The Vikings were a hit-and-run operation. But this raid didn't happen under normal circumstances. According to some of the sources, the weather for this raid was awful. So awful, in fact, that it made sailing nearly impossible. For raiders who take advantage of smash-and-grab tactics, this was troubling. Perhaps they should have offered more to the gods before beginning their voyage. But there's no changing that now. They would just have to make the best of the situation and utilize the extra time. According to one chronicle, the Vikings, quote, burned and demolished, killed abbot and monks and all they found there, brought it about so that what was earlier very rich was, as it were, nothing." End quote. Basically, they killed everyone and took everything they could get. And afterwards, they probably hunkered down and prepared to wait the storm out. The trouble is that the storm also gave the Northumbrians time to mount a defense and march on the monastery. And think about who was marching on them. The Northumbrians were battle-hardened, having survived numerous wars with virtually every neighbor they had, and then, just to spice things up, they had repeated civil wars as well. 
Not only that, but they were killing their own kings on what feels like a yearly basis. For other kingdoms, marching to war was probably a major event. For Northumbria, it was just a Tuesday. And these were the people who confronted the Vikings. Now again, we don't have many specific details on that battle. But we're told that the warband captured and killed the Viking chief, and killed many of his men. Eventually, those that survived decided to brave the foul weather, and boarded their ships, and escaped. However, they must have told a harrowing tale, because the Vikings wouldn't return to England for another 40 years. They certainly did plunder elsewhere, though, striking the coasts of Scotland and Wales, and utterly devastating the ancient monastic community of Iona on multiple occasions. But for the English kingdoms, it must have seemed like the Viking threat was over, rather than just beginning. Now, before I let you go, I'd like to take a moment to point out one more time how awful the History Channel's Vikings is. Can you imagine how awesome it would have been to open up with one or two episodes on Lindisfarne and Jero? And then around episode 2 or 3, you could fast forward 40 years to the time of Ragnar Lothbrok and have his shipmates talking about how only a madman would raid England after what happened to Jarl such and such. I mean, that's a way more interesting story, and it also would have stayed true to both the record and the sagas. Though, I suppose, if the History Channel started accurately recounting history, they wouldn't have time to air shows about alien swamp people running pawn shops. And we can't have that. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everything. And you can reach me and all those communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>